Hello and welcome back to Tough Talks. I'm pleased tonight. I've got uh, one of my first guests on, Chris Widdick. How are you? How are you doing? Very well. So Chris is a former golf professional, so I thought we'd get him on just to chat, really. Everything golf and I know Chris quite well, so I thought he would be my perfect man for my first podcast. Sounds good. Happy to help. Uh, well, the way I really start all my podcasts with is kind of take me back to how you kind of got into your golf and like when you fell in love with golf and when you really got playing. And I know you're kind of humble at it, but when you started getting really good at it. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. I um, So obviously being kind of in, I mean, just outside Liverpool. So uh, sort of grew up in a place in between Liverpool and Southport. And that's quite a big golfing area. You know, there's, there's a number of great golf courses. We're really lucky in this area. There's kind of, six or seven like world-class golf courses within an hour's drive of where I, I live. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot of golfers from this area and, you know, there's, there's plenty of opportunities to play golf. And I just kind of, I think my, there was a, a golf course called Formby Hall, which was considered one of the kind of newer ones on the, in this area. Um, and it's still sort of, sort of looked down upon a little bit by the, the, the older sort of, more established golf clubs but uh it was a chance for people who weren't kind of lawyers and accountants and things it was a chance for them to play golf and go and join this place there were the, the the entry criteria was if you had the entry fee you were in um which you know is is different to the traditional more traditional golf club so my dad joined there um and you know he wasn't very good and he just said you want to come along and play and i went along and kind of enjoyed it and, and got into it really that was about probably 19 I would say 1996, something along those lines. I was about 12. And um, yeah, and I just kind of went along and played with him a little bit. And, and to be honest, it wasn't something that I, I was like, oh, I love this straight away. And I wasn't even particularly good straight away. I just kind of went along with him and a few of my friends played. And there was quite a good junior section there. Uh, so it was quite competitive. And um, I, I remember just kind of gradually getting better and better playing with this group of lads who were there because it was really competitive and, you know, you're playing for like a couple of quid here and there and or playing for golf balls and that type of thing. And, and everyone's handicap kind of gradually came down and down and, um, and it was a really good grounding for, for a young golfer to, to go and experience that kind of competitiveness um, among your peers. Like even if it is only for a quid or for a couple of golf balls or something, um, it was a great way to, to kind of learn how to, to play a little bit and, and, and accept a bit of pressure and stuff as well. So, so that, that was, that was kind of the, my first experience of, of playing golf. Um, and then as I got a little bit older, I, I, I sort of just carried on playing every week at Formby Hall. Um, I then got made the junior, junior captain in about 2000, I think it was. And I was, I was playing off, I think 12 at the time. So not a particularly low handicap. Um, and I just kind of, I remember going, I was in college and I went to my dad and I just said, I hate college. And I think I want to become a golf pro. And um, he, first thing he said to me was like, are you on drugs? And um, I was like, no, no, like I want to become a golf pro. And he was like, you play off 12 handicap, like no offense, but you're not particularly, you know, you're hardly Rory McIlroy, although Rory McIlroy wasn't around at the time. I don't, I don't know who, who he said, but you're hardly... Nick Faldo or something and um, I said no like, I'm, I want to do it you know we basically we, we kind of he gave me a chance we came to an arrangement that I had to go and get a job and all this sort of stuff and I went and I did a year's practice basically from a 12 handicap at 16 
Um, I I came down from twelve to um, to to one handicap, just practicing every day, and then working in a pub in the night, and and sort of played a lot of the local amateur things, and um, yeah, and and just kind of got good by practicing. Basically, that was it. I was never a precocious talent or anything. I just kind of practiced my way to to one handicap. Did you find kind of you find a moment where it kind of all just clicked, or was it just slowly getting from twelve to ten to eight? Because I know what they always say, like when you get to the low numbers, like it's a big difference getting from like your four to your freeze and your freeze to your two. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they had a um, they they had a so I've been playing off twelve for ages and I've been practicing for about three months, like solid, and and really working hard and and my handicap wasn't coming down. I was I was having like sixteen good holes. And then I'd have like, I'd blow up a little bit and kind of just, you know, lose it. And, and my handicap wasn't really coming down. And then everything all clicked at a big, big tournament of Formby Hall, um, the captain's day or something. And I shot, I think, level par or one over par off a 12 handicap. And um, obviously junior golf back then, they were a little bit, it was a little bit kind of a junior can't really win a big competition, you know. So they, they shot me straight away, I think, to five, from 12 to five. Um, and then, and then it kind of gradually came down from there. And that was that 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 was the moment when I sort of thought maybe I could do this. Like I know it was only three months, but I, I'd almost kind of was getting to a stage where I think I'm just never going to get this, and putting kind of pressure on myself because it was the only option I had because I'd kind of sacked the college thing off, um, you know. And I wanted to, I suppose, wanted to prove my parents wrong a little bit as well. But um, but yeah, that that then that bit from five to one was tough then because. You know, you could be going having a great round and shooting, you know, you could be level par on 15, 16, and then, you know, I blow up and you shoot, you know, you have a double bow, you're on 17, double bow, you're on 18, and your handicap doesn't move and you've wasted another round. And, you know, it it, it, it became a lot more down to like the real clever scoring piece. Yep, you know, if you're really clever with your scoring and like, you know, get up and down and, and hold big puts and things and, once I found out how to do that, then I kind of gradually, gradually came, came down and down. And I, and I just, I just hammered the short game. Like that was it. I just practiced and practiced my short game for hours and hours on end. And that was kind of, I became very, very good at chipping and putting and, and kind of I got a bit of a reputation for missing greens everywhere, but always getting up and down. Have we Sebi, Sebi Ballesteros, soft hands. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then what was kind of that next step then from, kind of leaving Liverpool to kind of pursue it maybe as a kind of career? Yeah, so I um, so I, I, I was sort of, what would I have been then, 17 and a bit. So I'm an August birthday, so I wasn't turning 18 until the August. And my plan was to try and sign up for the PGA and do the PGA, British PGA um, professional qualification, basically, which I think starts in September each year, or it did at the time. But you had to be over 18. So this was, it was kind of, March, April time, and I had a summer planned to try and get. Um, I think I think I was down to scratch it by then, and I think the plan was to try and play if I could, if I could qualify. But I think the handicap had to be a bit lower for the likes of the Spanish, Spanish amateur, Portuguese amateur, British amateur, those sort of things that you could get into, just to get some experience really at the real high level. I never never had any aspirations to go and win, but just to kind of experience what it's like playing with these you know these these guys who are off like plus five plus six you know there were there were quite a few around our area and, and sort of formed in southport who who were that that level you know like kind of at the time like lee slattery and um um 
who else would there have been? Like some Matthew Baldwin is another one, you know, both gone on to have good European tour careers, you know, and they were sort of similar age at the time. Slats was a bit older, but um, so I, I, I was just sort of practicing and trying to figure out a plan for the summer until I started this PGA stuff. And I had a chance meeting with a guy who runs a driving range in Formby. Um, and we just sort of started chatting at, at his driving range and I told him my plans and everything. And he, um, he said he'd he'd just come back from a career in Austria. He'd been in Austria for, I think, 14 years. And he'd been working as a teaching pro over there and loved it. And it was great. And it was a really good experience. And he said, I should consider, this was like the first time I met him as well, which was really weird. But I said, he said, I should consider getting some experience and going over there for a few months. So I was like, that's a bit weird, but like, sounds interesting, you know? And, and he said, well, let me speak to a couple of friends of mine who were over there and see if they need anybody. So he rings me like later that day and sort of says, um, you know, I, I've, I, um, I've got a guy who needs someone like as soon as to basically go over, help out, get a bit of experience, you know, just sort of learn. And it would be a three month thing. So you go like May, June, July, maybe a bit of August, come back sort of end of August. And um, I was like, right, OK. Um, so I went to, again, went to my parents and I was like, listen, this opportunity's come up and it sounds like a good one, you know, so we sort of met and talked about it over the next couple of weeks. And then this, this guy, um, his name's Dave Shaw. He's a, a, a pro over in Austria, a place called Zelamzi. And he'd been there, he'd been there since like the mid eighties. So this was 2001. And, um, he, he was over, I think for, for back for winter, cause obviously there's no golf in Austria during the winter, um, because of the snow and we met and we hit it off really well. He's from, he's from Blackburn. Um, very very good golfer and yeah he said listen if you want to come over I can't pay you a massive amount but you know it's a bit of experience I'll sort your accommodation out you know you, you can learn for three or four months so I thought I'm going to do it so yeah went over there and um loved it like loved every second of it got into the language very quickly so managed to learn German sort of quite quickly as well um and because I was I was sort of I was always like good with people and things more so than I was playing golf. Um, I, I became sort of quite, quite a proficient coach, even though I didn't really know what I was talking about. Like from a kind of technical point of view, I understood golf and understood the game was able to help people. And uh, when it was time to go home in the, I think this August, September, you basically said, if you want to stay, you, there's a job here and you can, um, you know, I'll put you through your PGA qualifications and pay for it all for you um and you know i really wanted to stay so i then had some thinking to do obviously because my, my, my sort of it would have meant the end of any playing dreams that i had but you know in reality i knew that the playing was never was never going to be a top player that was going to earn millions i was probably would have struggled around the kind of lower tours forever and and you know i see some guys doing it now who are my age who i played with years ago and still still doing it and fair play to them but you know it must be difficult going out each week trying to scrape together a few grand you know to to pay your bills and things and then miss three or four cuts and all of a sudden you haven't been paid for, for two months, you know? So this was an opportunity to, 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 you know, quite, quite cynical point of view to make, make good money. You know, the teaching thing in Austria is massive. Uh, a lot of English pros over there making, making, making good cash and have a really nice lifestyle. It's a, it's a lot of work for six months, but then you've got kind of six months off, five months off as well. And if you, if you do it properly, you can genuinely take those months off. You don't have to get a job or anything in the winter. Um, so yeah, so that was it. Yeah, took took the job and um, and ended up there for for nearly nine years. 
um, which was yeah, a bit you know, great experience. And then in those months off, would you have kind of continued trying to trying to break on maybe to the tour or at any level? Yeah, I did. I think I think as I as I gradually got older and got more into the coaching. So like in, in Austria, it, it was it was relentless in terms of the coaching stuff. Um, you are coaching like. I mean, this is a big resort course, 36 hole resort course. They had like 20, 20 odd thousand green fee visitors in a six month season and a thousand members. So like there was a lot of people there every day. They had a you know huge driving range, a great pro shop that we operated. Um, it was a busy, busy place. And our kind of role was to be there from seven in the morning till seven o'clock at night, seven days a week. And that was it. And you were there all day, every day. And it was expected that you were there and you were giving lessons from maybe 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. every day. And there was five pros there when I joined. So it was big business, you know, and I, I kind of understood in my, I, I suppose it was, a, it was a realization again that, that the playing bit was sort of playing second fiddle to the coaching bit. And, you know, you're coaching potentially making three, 400 quid a day um, coaching at like 18, 19 years of age. And that was relatively easy to do, just stand there and talk to people, which I found easy, you know, and and yeah, you're coaching them, but a lot of them had no real aspirations to get any better. So it was very rare that you were coaching, like, you know, someone would come along with a six month plan to get better. It was more like, you know, an old older lady, for example, who just wanted to hit the ball a bit further or a bit higher. So, that, you know, you could sort of, manipulate that to 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 happen at the end of the lesson and she'd go away happy um so you know i, I don't want that to sound, sound like we were misleading anybody but we, we ultimately gave them what they wanted you know it would have been at the time my preference to sort of go into real technical depth about how to change their swing and analyze it but eight out of ten of these people were um eight out of ten of these people were were, were not there to get better over a longer period of time and weren't prepared to put the effort in either so it kind of fell back to me to say, okay, what do you want out of this half an hour or out of this hour? And if they wanted to hit it a bit higher or change their slice to a draw or, you know, we, we sort of labeled it quick fix teaching a little bit that you could almost in a half an hour, you could pretty much give anyone what they wanted. It might not last forever, but they'd go away feeling happy they were hitting it a bit higher or a bit further or a bit more of a draw or whatever that might be. And it was kind of a, a way that was very successful to teach over there with that number of people. So the more I was teaching, you know, I started off sort of teaching and then at 7 p.m. I'd go and practice for an hour before I went home. And obviously, as the days and weeks go on, you just can't sustain that. And the practice became going for a beer uh, and, you know, the, the, the practice became less and less. But during that during that time off, I um, I, I managed to go. My, my old boss went had a place down in South Africa near Cape Town and um, he took me down there and, and I did a bit of work for him down there. And uh, I got a lot of time to practice and play. So I sort of found myself playing and qualifying for the, the Sunshine Tour down, down there and traveling around South Africa and playing at different golf courses and, and playing competitive golf. And, you know, it kind of, it, 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 I got better for a bit, you know, playing a lot of competitive golf. But, you know, then I'd kind of go back to the summer and it would be teaching and, you know, working in the pro shop and selling golf clubs and selling golf equipment and, and all that stuff that I was really good at became the priority and that was where I was making really good cash and you know the golf the kind of as that went that way the golf practice kind of went that way and and, and gradually over over time I just you know my, my playing aspirations almost disappeared completely yeah I know it's you hear stories about different players like some even here like I think it was like Ian Polder or someone that 
turn pro with quite a high handicap in maybe four or something, and then he's gone on to do what he what he's done. But then at the same time, you know, you got boys that are struggling for kind of break even. Is it would it would always just be kind of break even, like pay for the flights, pay for the accommodation, and that's a successful kind of competition, basically. Yeah, big time. It, it's a tough business, you know. I suppose it's like any sport, really. You know, you'd be speaking to sports people who have have done far better than I did, obviously. But you know, if if you play sort of second or third tier football, for example, like you're not earning big cash at all, you know, like, and you'd almost be better off working from a financial point of view, going to a building site every day, or you know, picking up a trade and becoming a plumber or a joiner or something, because from a, a from a financial point of view, you'll do better. But obviously, you know, and, and the same counts for golf. If you're, you know, the Challenge Tour, which is the second tier now, has gotten better over the last few years, last probably 10 years. But, you know, they were. I remember they were playing, they, there was lads going to South Africa and going to South America and all this stuff. And if you won, if you won the tournament, you'd get like maybe 15 grand. If you came 10th, you were on like 1,500 quid. And you think the whole trip had cost you maybe five grand. Yes. So like, you know, if you weren't winning, and I think that the, the the difficulty was in those days with the challenge tour was if you didn't kind of go challenge tour straight to the European tour, it was a very difficult stepping stone because you kind of had it. You, you then were just literally keeping your head above water on the challenge tour. And I think that's what a lot of the, the, the really good players that, you know, like Tommy Fleetwood and um, use him just because he's local, but I think they, he went very briefly challenge tour or he went on the European tour and then dropped down and went straight back up again. And I think that's what the, the better guys tend to do is, is, is to sort of graduate very quickly and not get kind of caught up in that, like, you know, I need to, I, I've got bills to pay or I've got a mortgage. I mean, can you imagine standing over a put and you've got a mortgage to pay and you've got flights home to think about or kids' school fees or whatever, you know, like the likes of Rory and these guys, they're into the hundreds of millions now and, and it doesn't, the money's not about the money for them, but it's a different kind of pressure when you're standing over the ball thinking, I haven't even got enough to pay for my hotel for tomorrow night or, you know, my hire car or my credit cards maxed out or, you know, all of these things that you've had, you know, that a lot of the, uh, most of these guys think have to think about now. Um, it, it's not easy and it's difficult to, I think it's difficult to, to play your best and be, be the best version of yourself if you've got that stuff going on where you're kind of, and I'm not saying it's easy for the likes of McElroy and stuff, you know, these guys are massive talents, but, you know, for the, for the vast majority of the professionals out there who play on the Challenge Tour, the, you know, the, the Euro Pro Tour and the, the Alps Tour and those type of things, you know, these guys are playing for their dinner, you know, and who, who it takes a certain type of person to be able to get past that and kind of go, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to do this anyway and not worry about the bills and things. And, and that's, you know, they're the ones who ultimately go on and, and probably do best, I would imagine. Yeah. So you'd say like the in terms of you, who was down to like a one handicap and players that you kind of played with, there wasn't kind of that much in terms of technical ability, maybe between news and people that were actually on the tour. Maybe a lot of it's kind of dealing with kind of the pressure and the and then the mental side of thing. And they always say kind of a lot a big side of sport is kind of having that kind of mental mental kind of stability and that you kind of just back yourself for whatever for whatever it is. Did you find kind of them when you had that financial stability? when you and then you kind of had your five months off and you went and played in these tournaments and you said your golf got better do you think that was the reason is because you didn't you weren't playing for the money you were just playing because you had some time off and you end up finding your golf was better yeah definitely I think I think I had a bit of a period where I think you're exactly right I think I wasn't doing it for the cash and I 
I, I, I kind of was enjoying my life, you know, like I, I kind of stopped putting pressure on myself to play. I didn't, I'd, I've always, my kind of problem was I never quite believed I could do it, but I, I, I kind of did it sort of in spite of myself almost. Like I, 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 so I like, obviously you'll see now, I've said a few times I was never quite as good as them or never quite as good as that, but that's always kind of the way I was. I, I never quite believed I was going to get there with it. So when I, when I kind of relaxed a bit and, you know, like discovered, you know, South Africa was so good, you know, discovered wine and discovered great food and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we had a really good gig down there where we were taking groups of Germans, Austrians, Swiss, Scandinavian um, golfers down there and basically uh, going on holiday with them for 10 days. So that's kind of, you know, there are some British pros who do that in the, in the UK, but it's a big thing over in Europe that if you're a member of a golf club, the pro puts on like a trip somewhere and a load of players, a load of members go with them and have a holiday and the pro kind of organizes everything and plays with a few of them. And it's like, it's a big, it's a big deal over there. So we, we were doing that and we were doing kind of 10 days on 10 days off in South Africa. And the 10 days on was playing golf with these people, looking after them, going for dinner. And then we'd have 10 days off where we'd like relax and play a bit of golf and stuff and, you know, maybe try and fit a tournament in, but it was just like a really nice way to live. And we, again, money was great. So it what you know, I, I could, you could make like, I don't know, a couple of thousand quid in a week and then i'd be going playing in a tournament to try and win maybe six seven hundred quid you know like so it's kind of like well, what do i really need to put all this effort in and practice and i think the mixture of like the money not being a problem and the fact that i was just enjoying my lifestyle i did get better weirdly and then and then i think that kind of gradually caught up with me that you know i wasn't putting the the same effort in as I was when I was 17, 18, where I was, you know, spending four or five hours a day chipping and putting and things. And then it kind of catches up with you a bit. Better. You know, my, my big, my big ability was the work ethic. So like I, I wasn't a natural ball striker or a natural kind of, I keep using Rory, but you look at these guys, Rory McIlroy, Tommy Fleetwood, you know, the Americans, Justin Thomas, George, you know, these guys who are, who are natural from, you know, probably off real low plus figure handicaps when they were young, I was never one of those. I just had a better work ethic than most and was able to kind of get my handicap down just through sheer hard work. So the minute that work dropped off a bit, yeah, yeah, it stayed the same for a little bit, but, you know, gradually that it kind of caught up with me and, and, and that was it really. Uh, I find it fascinating to kind of chat to all kind of levels of sport and I'm a bit weird. I kind of like talking to the, the lower levels, especially those stories of people that, like your Jimmy Vardy's and stuff, that actually finally get to the top. But like they're so few and far between the people that actually are kind of at the lower levels and actually get right to the top that kind of those wonder stories sometimes hinder people but then again they can't happen and then I guess just in terms of kind of going back a bit what kind of your advice to kind of young people that want to kind of get in and get their PGA Pro um, qualifications and stuff how do you actually go about doing that is there like exams or is there do you have to be at yeah. a certain handicap yeah so when I, I did it kind of so it would have been now 20, nearly 20 years ago, which is incredible to think um, how old I now am. Um, but it was, so at the time you registered with the PGA, I think you had to have a four handicap or better at the time. Um, I think that, I don't think there is a handicap limit anymore, but there might be. Um, and you basically, you, so you registered with the PGA. At the time you did two residential um, trips down to the Belfry in the Midlands where you went and, and sort of learned from the various PGA instructors. 
and um, and then after three years, so there's two a year, two of those residential trips, which I think were a week long, and then you kind of work throughout the year. So you give golf lessons, you kind of you send send in videos of some of your golf lessons to be analysed and and how you know what you've worked on and. There's, a, there's an emphasis on the head professional where you work as well to kind of guide you a little bit. And, um, you know, my, my problem was, I say problem, it was, a, it was good and bad, really. It was good because it helped financially, but um, was that my head pro was, was a great teacher, but sort of 80%, 90% of his lessons were this sort of quick fix thing where it was really about making people happy and getting them to come back and getting them to buy stuff. That was like his, he was so good at that. Like he used to teach someone. And almost everyone he taught would you'd see them walking back into the pro shop with him and he'd be selling them, selling them a new set of golf clubs. Um, so that was that was the kind of mentality that I learned about teaching was like, you know, understand what's wrong with them, understand what they want, and then give them exactly what they want and also try and sell them some new equipment. So it was a great way of working because obviously we did really well financially and everything. Um, and it was quite so it's quite difficult for me doing the PGA route because that is very, very golf focused and very, very kind of here's here are the laws, principles and preferences of the game, you know, in terms of like, here's how the grip needs to be. Here's exactly how the stance needs to be. Here's here's the positions at the top of the swing and everything, you know, with lines on the camera and all that kind of stuff. And we sort of in, in, in practical terms, we never really used any of that. We just literally kind of looked at what would help them there and then and, and worked on that because that was the audience that we had. So, um, my, you know, so after that, you would then you you've sent all your exams in. There's also a playing. Sorry, you've sent all your videos in. There's then a playing ability part of it as well. Um, and I think it was either ten rounds under four over par during your three year period, or you could go in for a playing playing ability day at the Belfry, where you did two rounds and you had to shoot I think seven or eight over par in total over those two rounds. So it was quite tough because you could get to the end of your three years. And if you didn't have your playing ability, then you weren't, you weren't able to take your exams. So there was kind of two groups of people. There was the, there was the lads who were just dead good and girls. There was lads and girls who were dead good at golf who just like got past the playing ability really easy because they were just really good players, but struggled a bit with like the teaching bit. Um, and the kind of, and also that, that sort of ability to engage with people and interact. And that's, I think, why a lot of golf pros get, you know, a bit of a bad reputation at clubs where people think they're a little bit aloof or a little bit sort of, you know, snobby or whatever, because unfortunately they're, they're just, they're really good golfers who've been forced to stand in a pro shop because they weren't quite good enough to play on the tour. Yeah. And, and then there was the likes of me, who was a bit better at the kind of interacting, teaching, you know, kind of community side there. And then, uh, you know, but wasn't quite as good at the, at the golf. So there was, there was, there was that real mixture of people there um and yeah fortunately i managed i did the playing ability did the exams surpassed all of that and it was great um so I, I would you know i would highly recommend for any young player to 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 you know really kind of evaluate themselves early on and think it, you know is playing for me am i a good enough player um to 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 make it you know to to not just not necessarily to make it but to you know to to kind of challenge at, at maybe the second third second or first tier and I would definitely say to, to have a go, if you're financially in the position to do it, if you've got backers or sponsors, then go and do it while you can. Because I think the, once you get into teaching and into the pro shop world and you discover you can make money that way, it is difficult to retain that levels of playing. Uh, you know, I th I'm sure there's older golf pros will tell me different, but from my experience, once you kind of see that other side to the golf professional world, 
it is difficult to retain the level of playing. And I think I would definitely get, get go and play while you've got the opportunity, but also have those PGA qualifications to sort of fall back on, you know, where you could walk into a job somewhere and say, okay, well, I'm still a decent player, but, you know, I am going to make a career for myself in teaching or selling golf clubs or, you know, just being being the guy around the clubhouse who, who people come to for advice. Yeah. And then do you still find now, kind of, when you're playing a bit more casually with friends and stuff, you'd still be giving little pointers here and there or or do you kind of just... I tend not to, to be honest. Um, just because it's, it's... Like, I play hobby golf now, so I play every every week. I'm an amateur again. I've been for nearly 10 years now. Um, I play... Um, uh, Hesketh Golf Club near Southport, which is great, great golf course. And I, I only, I only really go and, and play. And I find, I find it difficult to, to tell people what they're doing on the golf course because they're then going to change it, and then it's not going to work. So the only way you're going to get someone better really is teaching them on the driving range. If any of my friends ask me, like if they say, "What do you think I'm doing here?" Then I'm, I'm more than happy to help. But I wouldn't sort of know unsolicited kind of go in there and start giving them tips one thing that you can always help people with is course management and that's one thing you know with any young player is it, it, and it was something I learned at a young age was you know how to get the ball around the golf course and you know you you, you might just see sort of fairway green fairway green but you know if you're out of position or you know if there's hazards in play or wind or whatever then there's a lot more to it than just hitting it on the fairway and hitting it on the green you know you've got to kind of manage your way around the golf course and understand the dangers of certain shots and so I would definitely help friends and stuff who I play with, you know, to say, well, don't perhaps maybe don't play it that way, play it this way, because here's what, you know, you've got a better chance of getting on the green there or, or, you know, I've got a friend of mine who's terrible at chipping and um, he, every time on, on part, long par fours and par fives, he's never going to get on the green with his second shot. So what he does is he gets his three wood out or something, smashes it as far as he can, as close to the green as he can, and then duffs his chip, duffs his next chip. And then he makes double bogey. And I say to him, why don't you hit like, instead of hitting your three wood, hit your nine iron and then hit another nine iron onto the green and you're not chipping them. You know, like you, you, you're, you're better off hitting a nine iron 130 yards than you are chipping from 20 yards. So use your brain a little bit and don't go for the big smash on the green. And he was like, oh yeah, I get that now, yeah. So now he does that and he's playing better, you know, and little bits like that. And I think, again, that's where young players can probably, you know, they, they see the top players on the telly who just like smash the drive, smash the second shot and all that kind of stuff, which is great. But I think I think better course management will definitely knock a couple of shots off your round. I need to be getting my notepad on here. I've started <laughs> kind of the last the last year I've I think everyone with COVID's kind of got into golf. It's really a sport that's now kind of if you don't play golf you're not before maybe it looked like kind of an old man sport or whatever, but now if you don't play golf you're not really seen as cool or whatever. But yeah I'm the same. I don't really my friends, they go out and they have their, their little Apple Watches or whatever and have their yardages to the pin and stuff. And I'm just like, just give me my six iron here and I'll, I'll fire it in. But yeah, you kind of club selection as well. Would that play a role as well? Kind of knowing your clubs inside out? Yeah, definitely. I think I think as long as you've got a rough idea how far you hit each club and, you know, like I said, that navigating it around the golf course, knowing, you know, the, the places to miss it. And you don't have to be playing top level golf to, to know that like, you know, a green is sloping from back to front, for example. So don't miss it long because it means that, you, you know, if you, your chip is going to run off the front of the green and you're back to square one. And, and I think, like, just kind of looking at your surroundings and understanding where you want the ball to go and what where you, and understanding your weaknesses as well. Like I said, that friend of mine with the chipping, he knows he's a terrible chipper. 
you know, we joke about it all the time, but he still leaves himself in positions where he's chipping all the time. And the, if you can just eradicate the bad bits a little bit or not leave yourself with the stuff you're not very good at, then, you know, you will ultimately get better. But, you know, there's a number of like gadgets and things. Like I use one of these bushnels, like a laser, where you can basically kind of um, zoom in on the flag and it tells you exactly how far away it is. And, and that's great. I wish I would have had that when I was playing competitively, you know, back in back in the early days, because I did used to just kind of guess it or, you know, look at the sprinkler heads and things. And if you played at a golf course, that didn't have any markings on. You were literally just going off the 150 marker and pacing it out and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, if again, if you want to enjoy it more, I would definitely recommend kind of looking at those type of things like those watches or you know, a Bushnell or whatever that, that, that tells you how far away the, 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 the hazards as well are. You know, you can zap to a lake and it tells you the lake's 200 yards away. You know, you can hit it 180 and you won't go in the lake, you know. Yeah, because I hear like the kind of pros of their caddies. I always think like kind of the caddies are just giving them the clubs or whatever. But yeah, I've been kind of listening to podcasts of caddies and stuff. And it's amazing how, how big a role the caddy actually is for them actually winning. Because I didn't know, like, when they kind of go before, say, the Ryder Cup or whatever, they're playing, like, the course a few days before, if not, like, a week before, just to know, like, every single point, wherever they hit the ball, kind of kind of, kind of of scenario training would it be, where you, you just literally drop it in the trees and say, if I hit my drive in here, how am I, how am I going to recover this? So then when they're actually playing the round, then it's kind of muscle memory type thing. Yeah. I think um, the role of a caddy has become has, be, has kind of become massive over the last again probably 10 15 years maybe 10 years um where like you know they're more than just the bag carrier I think a lot of people like you say are just saying well they just carry a bag around but you know I've got a couple of friends who caddy at a very high level and and you know their job is kind of is difficult you know they they're they're away from their family a lot um you know they they turn up at these golf courses kind of almost at risk of not getting paid anything I think they get a small fee each week but you know that they've got to provide their own travel their own board their own food their own car hire you know all of this stuff that um costs costs a lot of money and uh, they turn up and they walk the course and they you know they'll, they'll get the green books early you know i think the green books that you see on the telly those little sort of flip charts they've got on each hole that the caddies look at you know the caddies have to buy them themselves and they cost like i think two or three hundred quid so they turn up at the place they've paid their travel their accommodation their food you know car hire whatever it might be and they've got to buy one of these green books they could green books they could be kind of 1500 quid down before the even before the balls even teed off yeah. you know so it's it's a difficult job being a caddy and then you know they so they'll study the golf course they'll you know they'll work with the player to know the players yardages to know you know what their bad misses are and and they'll big a big thing that a caddy does is is, is they'll go they'll look for those were not to miss it on a golf course. And I think that's the big important bit. So they'll look at a green complex, for example, and then the green might be sort of sloped off to one side. And there's a bit at the back where like, if you hit it in that bit at the back, there's no way of getting up and down. There's no way of getting the ball anywhere near the flag. So they'll put a big red X or whatever in their, in their book. So that when it comes to hitting a shot into that green, they can sort of say to the player, okay, the yardage is this but we cannot go one yard past that. So let's hit a club less. And, you know, and th there's a lot of work goes into being a caddy that I don't think people fully understand. I, I also think there's, there's a big role now for people who've got friends or family members on the back who act as like, you know, almost like a travel partner and, you know, someone who kind of relaxes them a little bit. So you've got the likes of, you know, I mentioned before McElroy with his old pal, um, Harry Diamond, you know, he, 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 
they're great friends. I'm not sure he was a prolific caddy or anything beforehand. I don't think he was. I think he kind of got brought in. He was he was into golf, but he was Rory's mate. And I think having that, you know, person who you can trust and who you can believe in and, you know, you get on, you have a laugh and you, you can talk about other things other than golf. I think that's a big thing to have. You know, the same thing with Tommy Fleetwood with his caddy, Ian. Um, you know, and look at Lee Westwood, for example. You know, he's got his wife um on the bag for him and he's he sort of openly come out and said he, he he just wants someone he can kind of talk to on the golf course now he doesn't need any golf stuff he just wants to have you know a fraternal relationship with somebody on the golf course and i think i think that role of a caddy is a big one now the pressure that these guys are under the money that they're playing for a really good caddy is a is is is, is quite a, a big thing for these players and 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 the caddies then you know in turn can make a lot of money as well if the player does well you know you look at um, Patrick Cantlay who won the, the FedEx Cup a couple of weeks ago he won 15 million dollars uh, just for winning the FedEx Cup and you know his caddy will be on a cut of that probably 10% so you know that, that's a, a nice little um, nice little wage for his caddy as well and these caddies the top caddies can earn three, four, five, six hundred grand a year easy um, but you know they are going each week at their own cost and if the player has a bit of a slump it's just costing the money each week, you know, and th there's been numerous players who have, who have, you know, who've been at the top and then they, they drop off and kind of go missing for six months. You know, they might have 10 million quid in the bank, but the caddy doesn't. And the caddy is going, it's costing them two, two grand, three grand a week to go and caddy for them and they're not making any money. So it's not, not an easy job. And, and I think a really, a really valuable kind of partner for the player on, on, on who's on the tour. Yeah, it's fascinating. Definitely. I'll have to try and try and get a caddy on the pod and just really, dig into it because it sounds very similar to kind of trying to become a turn pro even trying to become a turn caddy is kind of the same process in terms of getting a lucky break or that, that's a big, of, big thing right getting a break as well yeah getting knowing the right people and getting the break is the big one and another pal of mine he got a big break about 10 12 years ago caddying for his mate who was kind of playing at the lower levels and um like kind of regional levels and he um he, he, he did really well and once once something I think nationally, and then ended up on the challenge tour, won the challenge tour, and then went straight onto the European tour. And he just basically took my mate with him because they were mates and he kind of caddied for him. And my mate's now a full time caddy on the PGA tour for somebody else, you know, who's making, and this guy's making millions of pounds, millions of dollars a year. And my, my pal is making, you know, five, 10% of that. And, you know, that, so he had a lucky break there. Now he was a very good golfer in his own right. So he probably would have done something in golf, but. Uh, you know, and, and he's a good caddy as well, quite a sought after caddy. But you, you do need when you look at if you look at it in, in real terms, there's maybe a hundred golfers on the planet who make big money. You know, and that means that to be one of a hundred caddies, it's quite a small pool to to, to find yourself in. You know, to to make decent cash as a caddy, yeah. there's only a there's only really a hundred opportunities which to do that, or maybe a hundred and fifty. So it's a really really small pool of which to to, to be a part of but um definitely something I, I looked at you know I had a couple of friends who we sort of talked about it about probably eight or nine years ago about getting involved in caddying and and at the time I, I wasn't unfortunately just wasn't in a position to to be able to be away as much and take the risk you know had a mortgage and things and you know a, a real job kind of beckoned a bit for me unfortunately but you know I, I kind of looking back it would have been a great opportunity to go and to go and do that um so that would be another another tip to any young golfers: don't get yourself mortgaged up too early, because <laughs> it yeah. definitely limits your opportunities. Yeah, as you said, kind of when you were when you're in your teenage years and early twenties, that's kind of when you give it a give it a crack before you kind of have a have to be paying for everything. I think that's with all kind of 
sports and all that if you're not at the top top level kind of yeah that's the way that's the way it goes um just it's just a final question who would kind of be the the biggest kind of golfer you've kind of come across or even played with in terms of your i'm sure over the years there's been a few that maybe played played with or against you yeah i played um i played with a guy called trevor immelman who might not be that well known um to people but he he won the masters in i think about 2007 um great south african player really really good big talent kind of disappeared a little bit after he won the masters which was a shame um but I played with him when we were younger a couple of times and he was amazing. And he was like sort of considered a, almost a Tiger Woods-like talent when he was sort of 18, 19. And I think he was in college in America. And, um, you know, when we played together a few times, he was like just incredible. You know, that, and that was really quite, it was a bit of a dagger through my heart because I was like, I am like nowhere near where this fella is. And, you know, this is the level then I, I may as well just pack it in now, you know? Um, so yeah, played with him a few times, um, played with Justin Rose when I was a bit younger as well, which was, which was great. Um, and he was, you know, he's obviously gone on to do amazing things and be a great player. Um, and, and a couple of the kind of Austrian guys as well, the likes of Ben Wiesberger and, um, Marcus Breer, who who were the sort of two top Austrian players, and Bern Biesberger is just in the Ryder Cup team now, first Austrian to ever be in the Ryder Cup team. Um, and yeah, we 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 I was quite fortunate when I was in Austria. We we got the opportunity to do some proper coaching, um, and we coached the uh, the Salt Salzburg was the region we were in the Salzburg regional juniors. So we got them in, I think, for a couple of a couple of times a month where they came to, to where we were to and we coached them. And it was really interesting. There's a few guys who've gone on. I think there's a there's a guy called Matthias Schwab now who who plays um on the European tour and is doing well. He was up there last week at Wentworth. Um and yeah we coached him and so all his success obviously down to me. Um and and one or two others who've gone on to do to do really well as well. So that was a nice opportunity to to kind of you know, have a proper coaching project where you use the, you know, all these skills and the analysis tools that we were given from the PGA. And that was, I would have liked to have done more of that because it was quite satisfying to see a really good player take on, you know, kind of take on board what you're, what, what you're telling them and using it and working at it over a course of weeks and months. Whereas the kind of day-to-day coaching that just never really happened. It was, you know, it was someone who'd come and have a lesson 20 minutes before their tea time and then you'd watch them on the first tee doing the exact opposite of what you just told them to do for 20 minutes. But, you know, they wanted to give you 50 euros for it. You had to reluctantly accept, you know? Yeah. No, that's, that's fascinating. All those different players. And my line is always like, you know, when you know, would you say with those kind of young people that went on and kind of smashed it on the third, would you, would you always say like you kind of knew straight away from the first time you seen them, they just have something different. Yeah, I think definitely. So like, Form behold, the course that I was I was a member of and junior captain of and all that kind of stuff. Um, the guy called Tommy Fleetwood now, who most people will have probably heard of, who's one of Europe's top players. He was a junior there as well, a little bit younger than me. And I remember in about probably 98, 99, we did a, uh, there was a, a big sort of exhibition thing on it at Form behold with a guy called Lee Jansen. Lee Jansen was the two-time US Open winner at the time. He kind of one of these like journeyman American pros won the US Open twice and then kind of gradually disappeared a little bit. He was over here, I think, I think it was for the Open, and he was doing an exhibition where he was hitting some shots. And he asked the crowd, he sort of said, does anyone want to come and hit some? 
And Tommy Fleetwood's dad put his hand up and was like, my son will, like pushed him forward. And Tommy Fleetwood was about eight at the time. And um, he stood up there and hit these, these junior tailor-made clubs. And he was like, he was just standing there whacking it, like so confident and, you know, eight years of age or eight or nine or something. And everyone was like, whoa, who's this kid? You know, and the next thing you sort of see him on the paper, in the paper, and you see, he got invited to some like world junior thing. And at, the, at that time you were looking at him thinking like, Christ, this this kid's going to be really good, you know? And and then, and I think he had his troubles a little bit, but, you know, he's, he's gone on to, gone on to win massive things and he's playing in the Ryder Cup again in a couple of weeks. And um, so you can, you you know, but ultimately there's been lads I've played with who are so good, but, you know, just didn't have the brain to go with it, you know, and and perhaps didn't have the work ethic. You know, there was a guy in, in Austria who, who actually went to college with Tiger Woods, went to, I think, Stanford University um, with, Ty, with Tiger Woods. He was in the same alma mater as him and all this stuff. And um, he was he was probably one of the best ball strikers I've ever seen this guy, but he just loved ale. Like, he just loved booze too much. And he went over, went to college, sort of got through college, was a massive success playing in the USA, came back. His parents were dead wealthy and he just kind of ended up getting a job for his dad and going on the drink all the time. But you see him playing and I watched him once where he turned up for the club championship of the course. I was, I was a, the pro at and he was sick on the first tee, you know, like because he, he was that drunk from the night before. And like, I think he shot about 65 or something. And he turned up straight out of his car, puked up on the first tee and went and shot 65. <laughs> and then didn't turn up for the next day. You know, like he was too drunk, didn't bother the next day. And so there's, there's loads of stories about that type of thing as well. And I suppose, again, in any sport, like massive talent, so good. Hit a golf ball like nothing I've ever seen before, but just don't have what it takes to do the do the work around it, you know. And I think I, I was I was the other way, um, you know, with, with my sort of short career that, um, you know, I, I, I didn't really have the talent, but I, I didn't go on the booze and things and just kind of, you know, practiced my brains out to to get to where i was so yeah it's um you know any any sport you've, you've got a you, there's a mixture of kind of skill look work ethic all of those things that need to fall into place to make it work for you um you know ultimately be successful yeah and a bunch of people who have obviously got all those things are now playing in a couple of weeks of the Ryder cup what's your kind of Ryder cup prediction just to kind of sorry just to throw you on the spot here it's tough because this is the USA has the best team they've ever had in terms of world rankings. So if you look at the top 10 world rankings, I think USA have like two, number two, three, four, five, eight, nine, and 10. I think we've got John Ram, who's obviously world number one. And um, I remember who world number seven is, but I think it's Victor Hovland. Um, and so in terms of world ranking, they are better. We've got a couple of the older guys, Coulter, Garcia, um, in there, you know, Justin Rose missed out, unfortunately. Westwood's in there. So it's it, it's tough. But I think the one big thing about this golf course is it's quite far north. It's in Wisconsin in, in America, which is... So they, they normally play kind of Florida, Carolinas, those sort of areas where it's hot, humid. You know, the ball travels miles and everyone's got the T-shirts on. Whereas this course, Whistling Straits, is um, is, is, is kind of further north in, in Sheboygan. <laughs> And um, it's windy, it's cold, it can be wet. And so, you know, it, 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 it has a chance to be a leveler for, for Europe. And I think if it is a bit windier and a bit colder, it reduces their ability to just like bomb it down there and chip and put like the, I think that they sort of plan to do. So my long-winded answer to that is I think, I think it'll be a close victory for Europe. Uh, I think it will be very, very close. But I think I, I just have a feeling that the, the foursomes element 
which is the alternate shots. So like you and I were playing, I tee off, you take the second shot, I play the third. I think that Europe will 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 command that side of it and be, have enough points going into the singles to win. Yeah, because they always say Ryder Cup's not really what you've done through like those two years or whatever before it. It's kind of on the day, kind of those type of characters here. Ian Poulters and stuff that just turn up on the crunch moments and kind of and deliver as the post fan always does. So yeah, yeah. does it again. Yeah, definitely. But no, Chris, big thanks for coming on today and just anyone listening, give us a give us a follow on Spotify and I'll see you next time. Cheers.